If I had to summarize the Bible, like all 66 books and in, in maybe one or two sentences, maybe it goes something like this. The Bible is the story of man stepping outside of God's will for him and God in his love and mercy and grace uh, bringing him back in. Like there's more, but if I had to kind of just, you know, make a go at just telling the story of the scriptures, it would be that, that, that man moves outside of God's will and God makes a way to bring him back in. Uh, if you've ever parented, you know that this is uh, the parent's job in the parent-child relationship. The kid wanders off, the parent brings him back. Uh, the kid makes uh, you know, poor decisions, and the parent, uh, parent tries to correct and, and, and then draw them back into the protection and provision of the parent's direction for their life. My son Cooper was uh, three years old. I've told this story before. Uh, but uh, he was uh, messing around with one of his toys on the top of the big blue chair in the corner of our room, uh, our living room at the time, and uh, the truck fell over, and so immediately, uh, you know, Cooper thought it'd be a great idea to, to reach as far as he could with his stubby little three-year-old arm to grab the truck or whatever it was, and of course, it was far, uh, far, far, far from his fingers and, and his uh, momentum, his weight, his chubby girth. I kind of look like Cooper uh, at the age of three. Anyway, uh, but he, he went over the side or over the top of this chair, and, uh, and the chair was wedged in the corner of the, of the room. It was uh, this prison. I, I'd never thought of using it as such, and uh, <laughs> maybe should have after that. But uh, uh, I was just sitting on the couch watching the whole thing happen as, as parents are wont to do, especially dads. Dads will just let kids do stuff, right? I mean, off they go. Let's see what happens. And uh, um, all I heard from behind the chair was, I, say, I, I said to Coop, Coop, you okay? Because, you know, he fell off a chair. I wanted to make sure he was all right. Uh, but there was no crying, so I was pretty sure he was all right. But then he just said these words, I stuck. He didn't have a whole lot of vocabulary back then, but he just, I stuck. And that, that was my cue to get up and walk over to the corner of the room and pull my kid out. He'd probably still be there if I uh, hadn't done that. But that's the story of the scriptures. Um, we, early on in uh, creation, decided that we knew better and we left the will of God and his plan for us, and we've been doing it ever since. And God, since those first humans, has been gracious and loving and has been preparing a way for our return. If you're here this morning and, and uh, uh, you're kind of here uh, uh, for a first time or uh, for a first of the, of the few times that you've been a part of this and you're trying to figure out what the Christian story is, that, that, that's it. You were created by God, for God. You and I, everybody in here has been um, subjected to uh, Adam and we have uh, been born into sin. And uh, if you are here this morning and you just kind of want to understand Christianity, God sent his only son, Jesus, uh, to pay the price for your sins, uh, to be uh, resurrected from a death that he died for you and for my, uh, myself and, 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 and for us to be able to put our faith in him and what he has done. We don't have our faith in what we can do. We have our faith in what Christ has done. And that's what saves us and reconciles us to a holy God. But the book of Exodus is kind of this like one book microcosm, this one book st uh, story of the, uh, the exodus of the children of Israel the Israelites from Egypt, but it's also rife with this theme of being uh, on the outside and coming back in, of being on the outside of, uh, of God's promised land for Israel, and eventually, as it's told to us in the book of Joshua, getting in. Um, 
But Israel is, is a key player in our salvation because it was through Israel, through the descendants of a guy named Abraham, uh, that we were given Christ. It says in Genesis chapter 12, we read these verses last week, but God went to this guy Abraham and he said to him, hey, I'll make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This was the promise that God gave this guy Abraham that one would come from his descendants who would be the blessing of all mankind. We understand that person to be Jesus, the son of God, a descendant of Abraham. And so in Exodus, uh, we see this microcosm of the greater story of God's redemption. And we get to watch as he takes his people from outside the promised land uh, across the Red Sea and into the wilderness where they eventually will cross over into the home that he designated for them. So in Exodus, we see the faithfulness of God on display as he brings the Israelites from outside in. But as we started last week, we're also going to see how his plans work, how God uh, uh, shows us the nuances of, of the execution of his plans as he brings about his glory and our good. I'm going to dive right into Exodus now. So if you're there, Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, we're going to learn some things about God's plans for us. Uh, first of all, the circumstances surrounding God's plans will change. <laughs> you ever notice that? My, my life is like almost entirely plan B. Is anybody else like that? Like, like I start out in a direction and it just never ends up the way I thought it was. Uh, yesterday morning I, I got done running my, well, trudging my three miles and uh, I, I came home and Eleanor had invited over a bunch of folks from our church who worked with her in the garden to, to work on this trailer that we have. Have you heard me talk about this trailer? We're finally getting around to getting it. <laughs> We've only had it for two years. Anyway, uh, uh, but we're, we're, we're finally, you know, making some mo movement on that and so these, these fine folks came to help and so I was, uh, I, I was the, the, uh, the, the, the fire pile burner. My job was to take everything that was pulled, all the wood, you know, that was needed to be removed from this trailer uh, and take it to the fire pit that I have in my backyard and, uh, and burn it. And I like that job. It's a fun job. Uh, so I had a wheelbarrow and I was just hauling these scraps as they'd pull them out of the trailer in this wheelbarrow back to the fire pit. And, and I'd, I'd done a couple, you know, uh, runs with it. And, and, and as I was pushing the wheelbarrow back to the trailer to get some more scraps, I, I, I said, you know, I can probably do this better. I can do this quicker, more efficiently if I just get a good run going with the uh, wheelbarrow. And then I kind of like a pole vaulter, just kind of jack the end of the wheelbarrow. It's got two wheels and a little lip on the front. So if I just jack the, the, you know, the, the end of the wheelbarrow into the ground and I can just launch the wood into the fire, it'll go so much quicker. Anybody want to guess how that went? Anybody want to? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I didn't quite plant the wheelbarrow at the right time, so I knocked over the uh, rocks that surround my fire pit into the fire pit. So I got all those in there now. Uh, as things are burning, did I mention that there's a fire in the fire pit? And, and so all the wood kind of flies, but, but it goes in different directions because it wasn't, yeah. I spent more time, this might be a surprise, spent more time cleaning up the results of plan A uh, than I actually uh, did ex executing plan A. I, I, I live in plan B. Um, God doesn't. God's plans are perfect and sure and He's not reacting to us, but sometimes from our perspective, it looks like, well, th that's not how this was supposed to go. That's not my plan. That's not my plan A. Uh, but we can be sure that uh, as God's plans are coming about, there, there's going to be circumstances 
that change. That's what's happening in the story of Israel here in verse 8. It says, now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. If you don't know the story of Genesis, Exodus is going to be hard for you. But there was this guy, Joseph, who in the, uh, the latter half of the book of Genesis came uh, on the scene and was used of God in Egypt to basically enable Egypt to uh, survive a, a huge famine. Seven years of famine uh, were coming. And so Joseph was uh, t- you know, interpreting a dream up by Pharaoh that uh, this was going to come. And so they had seven years of preparation for these seven years of famine. Anyway, uh, Joseph uh, was a brother to the sons of a guy named Jacob, who was also called Israel. And uh, he, he brought his brothers over. There's more, but that's basically what happened. And so Joseph and his brothers and his dad all lived in Egypt. We read that last week. There was about 70 of them when they came over. They multiplied, and, 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 uh, and there was m- much more of them. And, and over about, you know, a two- or three-hundred-year f- uh, portion of time, uh, uh, they just grew in number and in strength to the point now in the history of Egypt. Uh, so much time has passed that... Uh, uh, This Pharaoh who comes into control now um, doesn't recognize or appreciate the story of Joseph and what he did for his country. He wasn't around for it. All he sees is that there's a ton of Israelites. And so things are about to change. Things are going to get really bad. Anybody ever been there? Things were going great and all of a sudden, whoa, wait a minute. Now things are really bad. I mean, I thought everything was just kind of running smooth here. But change comes. God had foretold uh, actually long before this change came that it would come. He told Abram actually in in the time that he was making his promises about uh, this descendant uh, that would come from him, this one who would bless all of the families of the world, all the peoples of the world. Uh, He said to Abram, he says, know for certain, verse uh, 13 of Genesis 15, know for certain that your offspring uh, will be sojourners, will be migrants, immigrants in a land that is not their own. Uh, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Uh, if, if the Israelites had been paying attention to the oral traditions of their faith, uh, they knew that this had already been prophesied. But even if you know something bad is potentially going to happen, it's still kind of jarring when it does, right? Look, we have all statistics about cancer and all these diseases and, and that there's a, a greater than zero chance that we're going to get sick someday. But when it, when it happens, we're like, What? How is this possible? Here's what I would say to you uh, when in life uh, things break and circumstances change. Uh, be sure that God's plan is uh, still underway. In a broken world, things break, but when they do, uh, our keys are not to be surprised at their breaking. In a broken world, things break. Don't be surprised. And then most importantly, as it teaches over and over in the scriptures, persevere. Don't be broken by the things that break around you. Stand strong in your faith. Stand strong in our Christ. Uh, Trust in him to carry you through whatever circumstances bring. In World War II London, uh, the English government emblazoned on, on many billboards, keep calm and carry on. That was the motto during the Blitz, or the London Blitz, the London bombings. Keep calm and carry on. Hey, we're probably going to get bombed again tonight. Keep calm and carry on. A website has uh, taken this uh, saying for themselves, and they've printed up the T-shirts that say, keep calm and chive on. Has anybody seen these? 
It's just a website. I was so disappointed. Anybody ever thought something had so much more significance? And you're like, wow, just a website, printed T-shirts. Anyway, uh, but keep calm and carry on is the, is the call of God in the life that we live with him and for him. Over and over in Scripture, we see things getting tough at crucial times. Even as Jesus was about to go to his cross, his friends didn't understand that this was what was supposed to happen, that it was all part of God's redemptive plan. And so Jesus, um, certainly in the, the, the weeks and years preceding his final week on earth, had told them about it. Uh, but even in that last week of his life before he died, uh, he, he explained it over and over again. It was Thursday of that week. They're in the upper room in what we know to be the Last Supper. It's we get communion, which we'll be taking later as we sing. And then that, that gathering, that last gathering, um, the entirety of the uh, 14th, 15th, and 16th chapter of the Gospel of John is, is shared with the disciples. If you've ever read those chapters, it's all in the upper room. And one of the last things that Jesus shares with his disciples is, are these words in John 16, 32. He says, behold, the hour is coming, and indeed it has come, when you will be scattered. Circumstances are going to change. Yeah, I know we walked into town four days ago, and everybody threw their coats and palm fronds on the ground and thought we were awesome, but things are going to change. You're going to be scattered, each to his own home, and you're going to leave me. You're going to be lost and without course, and you're going <laughs> to wonder what's going on. But then he says in verse 33, he says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Yeah, circumstances are going to get tough. In fact, I've told you about them so that when they happen, you can look to me for the peace that you need to get through them. He says it this way. He says, in the world you will have tribulation. Things are going to break in a broken world. But take heart. Jesus says, I have over." the world. It's comforting words when as a child you hear your parents say, I got you. I got you. You're fretful and fright, you know, frightened of jumping into the pool or, or uh, you know, um, uh, being around the bee. Some of us are still that way. But when you hear that comforting tone of your protector saying, hey, I got you. It helps you get through the circumstances that come. Bottom line, our, our circumstances should have no bearing on our faith in our God and our trust that he's moving things forward. When the bottom drops, we look to him because, second thing we learned here in Exodus, God's plans cannot be stopped. Let me say that again because you didn't get fired up enough about that. Let me say that again. God's plans cannot be stopped. You and I serve a God who cannot be thwarted. He can't be undone. He can't be overcome. He is a sure bet every time. Not a betting man. But we can have a confidence that no matter what's going on, God is in control. Pharaoh gets with his his advisors, and he says to his people, behold, the people of Israel, verse 9, are too many, and they're too mighty. They're too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. We've got to make a plan, some policy, uh, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies, 
and they fight us. They escape from the land. A couple things there. Um, one of the reasons for the fear of the Pharaoh was um, military. If, if, if an outside nation was somehow able to convince the leaders of this migrant culture in his country uh, to side with them, um, all the walls and all the cities wouldn't matter. Uh, they would be lost from within. So he feared their numbers and their might. Uh, for military reasons, but he also feared uh, that they might lose this culture who uh, uh, was, was not uh, the, the, the uh, you know, rightful inhabitants of the land, this, this culture that they could potentially um, you know, economically benefit from and had already economically benefited from uh, up to this point. He says, we don't want them overcoming us and we don't want to lose them and have them escape from the land. So here's the plan they, they laid out. Therefore, they set taskmasters over the Israelites to afflict them with heavy burdens. And the Israelites are credited with building uh, the store cities of the Pharaoh, these, these cities that didn't exist before the Israelites uh, went and erected them. Um, the Pharaoh forced the Israelites to, to build Pithom and Ramses. Ramses was actually uh, like, uh, you know, the, 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 not the capital, but one of the summer homes or one of the chief homes of the kings of Pharaoh moving forward. But look what happens. It says in verse 12, but the more that Israel was oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. Yeah, it's kind of like the more you tried to squeeze them, the more they squeezed out of your hands and just kind of spread out all over the place. It's like trying to hold a cup of water. It just kind of goes, not a cup, but the water. Everybody pictures that, right? It flows out and spreads around. Uh, the Israelites prospered multiplied in the time of their persecution. Historically, this has been the case uh, throughout the Bible's telling of its story and, and certainly even in, in the more modern years of history in the church, if a church is persecuted or if a people in a, a general era, era are persecuted for their faith, um, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's resulted in that, that people growing in strength and in fervor for the things that they believe. You know, you go back to uh, here in Israel in the time of um, the telling of the Exodus, you got the early church where uh, the disciples were told in no certain, uncertain terms, um, hey, don't preach this gospel anymore. And they said, hey, do your worst. That's the book of Acts chapter 5. Do your worst. Uh, we're going to keep preaching. And the, and, the, and the church grew in number. Uh, you go into the first and second centuries where things got really bad. The Romans started, um, you know, feeding Christians to the lions and using them as torches to light the roads into their cities. But still, the church persisted. You come to modern times and in um, uh, traditionally communistic countries where Christian faith has been oppressed, places like China and Russia before it became free, freer. Um, uh, the church in those, it, it's, it's one of the purest forms of the church. In fact, uh, what I fear for the American church is that we don't get persecuted enough. I think it's coming. But we're kind of a fat and happy church. We, we function in freedom. We all came here to, today without any fear of reprisal. We're worshiping in the open. And that's fine and dandy. Is everybody grateful for the freedoms that we have? But here's the deal. We'd really find out who's in this if this wasn't free. We'd find out who's a poser and who's for real pretty quick. Now, we'd be drawn together in connection like we aren't in this freedom that we now exist in. 
because we'd have to rely on each other. We, we would certainly understand our need for salvation in ways that we perhaps don't know, right? Because how many of us have gone through that illness or experienced that downturn in our economic setting or, or gone through a trouble, and all of a sudden we understand in different ways than we did before our need for a Savior, Persecution does that. Romans 5 tells us that it um, uh, creates in us perseverance that breeds character and leads us into hope. James tells us that you know, trials are going to you know, make us stronger. Now here, that's what we see happening uh, with the children of Israel in Exodus. They just got stronger. They didn't have Spurgeon to quote back in those days, but if they did, they might have done this. Charles Spurgeon was a great English preacher, and this is what he said. He said, God is too good to be unkind, and he is too wise to be mistaken. So when we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. He's for us and not against us. He'll rescue us. He'll provide for us. When, when things get hard, his plan cannot be stopped. John Weaver is the pastor of our uh, chapel ministry that is uh, going to move very soon, we trust, in the next couple months to their new home in Sefner. Uh, that if you haven't heard, we've been able to secure five acres of land in a building that we're retrofitting for a church. And uh, it's going to be just an awesome place for the chapel to grow. So if you haven't had a chance to go next door and uh, see John in the chapel church, um, and the chapel uh, Folks, go, go wish them well, pray for them, perhaps be a part of them as they transition. We'll talk more about that as the time comes. But John was sitting in the, in the uh, teaching planning time that we have here as pastors, and he told me this joke, so if it doesn't work, it's on John. Here it comes. Uh, a godly woman uh, was living uh, next door to an, an atheistic man, not just a kind of a passive atheist, like an antagonistic atheist, a jerk atheist. Uh, and so uh, she was not a woman of means, and so she prayed every day and prayed with her door open, not so that she could rub it into the atheist's, you know, uh, life, but, uh, but just that's how it worked out. And so she'd pray for her needs to be met, and, and the atheist would hear these prayers and just get mm, angry about them. One day she prayed for groceries. The atheist heard the prayer. Lord, I don't have any money. I don't have any way to feed myself. I, I need you to provide me the food, my daily bread. And so the atheist hears this prayer and says, all right, I'm going to get her. And so he goes to Publix and he buys all the groceries that he can buy, sets them on the front stoop of her house. And when she comes home uh, from her, you know, menial job, she, she finds the groceries there. And what does she do? As a, as a believer in God, she just hits her knees right away and says, thank you, Lord. You provided for me, answered my prayer. You, you've given me the groceries that I need. I, I praise you and bless you. And the atheist pops out from behind his bushes in his yard and says, aha, I've proven to you that there is no God. I got you those groceries. God didn't get those groceries, and she didn't miss a beat. And she said, and thank you, Lord, for using the devil to deliver the groceries to me. John will be happy. You like that one. He told that joke in our meeting, and I laughed just like you did. But it made me think, you know, sometimes in life, the devil delivers the groceries. Sometimes in life, the hard things bring about the good things that God wants us to have. God's plans cannot be stopped. No matter how hard the world comes against us, God is greater still. 
The last thing I want you to learn this morning is that God uses the least likely to move his plan forward. Throughout history, he has chosen the least to do his most. He does it again here in the story of the Egyptians because things are going to go from bad to worse here uh, in the uh, policy-making rooms of the Egyptian government. Uh, At first, they uh, thought they could just kind of push the Israelites into slavery and that would keep them from continuing to grow and multiply, but that hadn't worked. And so it tells us in the last half of Exodus chapter 1, verse 12, that the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. They'd gone from being just kind of a social concern to being uh, a people that they feared greatly. And so they ruthlessly continued their plan of slavery, but they, they did so now in such a way that it was not just meant for them to produce these great cities and provide for the economic uh, situation there in Egypt. It was, it was to punish and to subjugate, to discourage this migrant class. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field and all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. You ever read the Bible and, and the writer of the Bible keeps repeating himself? Does everybody see how he just did that? He kept saying the same thing over and over again, but it's a, it's a literary uh, tool. They, they, they would write that way so that people would kind of get the gist. This was really bad. Like whatever you thought ruthlessly was when I first wrote it, like double that. It was that, you know, or triple, you know, it, it was way worse than either any of us can imagine. Later on in the story, uh, we're going to see this ruthlessness um, in the account of a, of a slave driver beating an, an Israeli man to the point where Moses, the guy we're going to meet, steps in and kills the guy because he just can't take it anymore. It was bad, all caps, bolds. But now it's going to get worse because the king of Egypt's going to say to the, uh, to the Hebrew midwives, verse 15, uh, the king of Egypt says to the Hebrew, that's where I got that, uh, one of whose names was Shifra, okay, and the others whose name was Pua, bummer, Pua. Anyway, uh, but, but these two midwives, these anonymous, um, childless, we're going to find out, Women who were in charge of helping uh, the Hebrew women who were pregnant deliver their children. Uh, they were apparently agents of the government, or at least were you know, brought in on this plan. These two women, Shifra and Pur, uh, they met with the, the Pharaoh, and then the Pharaoh said this, when you serve a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall what? You're going to kill him. Now, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. This is pretty shrewd, pretty insidious. We're going to try to limit the population, kind of put in check this whole, you know, growth and multiplying thing uh, by singling out the, the, the male children at birth. And if, if you see a male child, here's what I need you to do, Shifra and Pua. I need you uh, to, as you're taking the baby away and, and, and you know, reviving the child, and cause, I need you to to, to put your hand over that baby's mouth or, or whatever it is that you're going to do to end that child and then bring the baby back to the mother and, and say, I'm so sorry, but you, your child was, was stillborn. Your child didn't make it. And, and this, listen, this was, this was not uh, as, as uh, you know, unbelievable as it would be for us today because back then uh, children did die and mothers did die in childbirth. And so it wouldn't be so crazy. And, and so the, the Pharaoh 
was trying to surreptitiously bring about birth control in the uh, migrant class. Hmm. Verse 17 tells us what happened, though. Oh, let me, let me pause for a second. Anybody know why they, they use the dudes? Why, why'd they kill the guys and not the women? Well, because their chief, their chief fear was a, a military uh, uprisal. And if the men were the ones who were drawn into you know, uh, allegiances with Israel, uh, Egypt's enemies, then, you know, if there's no dudes, we don't have a problem. Women, let them be born. We can use them as slaves and we can intermarry them. If they marry an Egyptian man, then they become Egyptian. But the Jewish men, they got to go. So here's what happened. When you serve as midwife, uh, oh, but, yeah, thank you. But the midwives, what did they say? They feared God. Fear here isn't, you know, like God's going to smush me like a bug if I do this, although I'm sure that was part of it too. But fear here is a reverence. They chose to honor God over the Pharaoh. The midwives fear God, and they, they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but they, they let the male children live. And so the king of Egypt calls the midwives, verse 18, and he says to them, why have you done this? I gave a direct order. You live, uh, you know, at my pleasure. I, I can end you right now. Why have you done this and let the male children live? Why'd you disobey me? And the midwives lied. <laughs> they said, because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. For they are vigorous. Kind of a slam on the Egyptian ladies there. But uh, they are vigorous and they give birth way too fast. Before we as the midwives can even get to them. Think about it. There's no texting and stuff back then. So a woman goes into labor, and if she, a Shifra or Pua are on the other side of town, uh, they, they can't just, you know, get there right away. And so um, their excuse, as thin as it might seem, was that, hey, we just can't get there in time. These, these wives or these, these, these mothers understand that their children are alive before we get there. And if we kill them then, it's, it, the jig's up, bro. We can't kill them once they know they're alive. For whatever reason, I trust that God was a part of this, uh, the Pharaoh uh, allows for that to stand. And so God sees this uh, obedience of the women. But which, by the way, just so we're clear, the women didn't have the, the law of Moses. That's coming later in this book. They didn't have like a bunch of rules written down for them to follow. But they did have the, the, the story of the garden where God had told the first man and the first woman to be fruitful and multiply. And they understood, hey, wait a minute. If we're a part of ending the lives uh, of these children, then we are going to controvert what God had intended for humanity, to be fruitful and multiply. They understood this was wrong. And so they defied the orders of Pharaoh. And it says in verse 20 that God dealt well with the midwives and that the people of Israel continued to multiply and grew, what's it say there? Very strong. Yeah, they were, they were doing okay there, but it seems like the more uh, that the persecution ramped up, the stronger the children of Israel grew. And it says, because the midwives fear God, uh, feared God, he, God gave them families. Um, it's not a guarantee. I don't want to preach a prosperity gospel, which basically says if I do for God, God's got to do for me. But it is a principle that we can um, see in Scripture that over and over again, as people persevere in the midst of their persecution, God 
provides for them things as a thank you and as a blessing for them sticking with him. As we uh, get ready to sing some more and kind of transition to that time of worshiping God, I pray that you worship God in light of the fact that uh, even as circumstances change in your life, his plan is sure. And I want you to reflect on something else. Do this with me right now. Uh, As you have gone through your life, I trust that God has brought you your own shifras and puas. Maybe not at birth, as midwives, you know, coming into that scene of your existence. But certainly, in the telling of your story, there's been these insignificance, these seeming nobodies who just kind of arrived on your scene and were used by God to move your story forward. I was a fourth grader in a little Baptist church in downtown Quincy, Massachusetts, a suburb of Boston. I was a pastor's kid, so I'd grown up knowing about Jesus, but um, in my development as a follower of Jesus Christ, I remember my fourth grade Sunday school teacher. Her name was Miss Jenny. She was 197 years old, (laughs) or at least she seemed so. She had a tremor. Um, We were a group of unruly boys, fourth graders, no meds. But she had this way of calming us down, controlling us. So much so that we could actually hear her tell us about the love of God. And we could sense her love for us at the same time. She made us cookies on our birthday. And in uh, uh, a church world where there was many who scolded and looked down on the children, Miss Jenny loved us. And she was one of my midwives. I got to college, and I was going to a, a Christian university, Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, and so there's all kinds of christian stuff everywhere. But I remember Sean DeMoss. Sean worked at the gymnasium where I played basketball and team there, and every night I'd throw my sweaty uniform, practice gear stuff at him, and he'd be in charge of uh, cleaning it for the next day's practice. But one day, the coach saw Sean, and Sean came out on the court while we were getting ready to pray at the end of practice, which we did, and and Sean prayed. And it's the first time I remember, I'm sure it had happened before, but it's the first time I remember hearing someone pray from a heart full of awe and worship and love for his God. Like, he started to pray, and he, he was one of those guys who pauses before he starts. You're like, he knows he's supposed to pray, right? He's supposed to pray right now. We're all standing here sweaty in a huddle. And he's taking his time, but he prayed. And I, I grew just in being around Sean because he was a midwife to me. I could fill our time. We don't have it, but I could fill our time with the stories of my midwives. Can you think about who yours are? The ones that God sent into your world to move your story forward. Maybe you're sitting next to him. You might want to thank him even as we praise God today. But as you worship your God, reflect on his goodness to you through those least of these that came into your life. The other thing I want to challenge you with before we sing is to prepare yourself to be the midwife that God wants you to be for someone else. Because everybody gets here, uh, I hope you do, that uh, we 
exist. We, um, our entire being is wrapped up in glorifying God by being disciples who make disciples. You, you're a disciple maker if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and, and you're going to be someone's shifra. You're going to be someone's story. So be ready. Be available. Be willing to step in. Fear God. Honor him. And be used of him in the process. Isn't it great to serve a faithful God? Isn't it great to watch as his story unfolds? Isn't it great to be assured of his power and his might? And to be able to sing of his promises? We're going to sing those in a second. Will you stand with me as we pray? God, we come before you now. Grateful to you for coming to us throughout history as your createds and drawing us from outside in. Grateful to you for the ways that you execute your plan. Even as we wonder what you're doing, we know that you are sovereign and that your plan moves forward regardless of our circumstances. We, God, seek to be a part of your plan, to be used by you and for you in each other's lives so that your hopes move forward, that your hopes are realized in us. You are faithful, God. We praise you. We lift up your name today because of your faithfulness. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Father of kindness, you have poured out grace. You brought me out of darkness, you have filled me with peace. Giver of mercy, you're my help in time of need. Lord, I can't tell.
promises are yes and amen. Yes, Lord. Come on, put your hands together.
that God in his love never failed, that he is faithful, that we can be secure even when we're not, that we can trust him because he's good. We can trust him because he doesn't make mistakes. What a joy to have that in life. Let's pray and thank him for it together. God, we come to you now just so grateful. Grateful for your unfailing love. Grateful for your promises that are sure. Um, Lord, translate that in our lives to faith and hope and steadfastness. God, grant us uh, your strength in whatever uh, life circumstances bring uh, to follow you and um, to pursue you in, in Christ's likeness. You are good. We are grateful. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you, church. Have a great week as you go.